Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us. And on the program tonight, I look at the three favourite stocks that I have for 2023. I get this question all the time, so I thought, well, it's about time I wrote about it, and I did that in the Switzer report. I'll share that with you in a moment. Uh, we then talked to a gentleman who has probably one of the most difficult names I've ever tried to pronounce. Adrian, I'll do it, but I'm going to be wrong. It's Polish. Adrian Przlovny. And uh, he reckoned it was good enough, but I'm sure his family was laughing. He's a CEO of Independent Reserve. Now, this is a, a crypto and Bitcoin exchange company. He's going to talk to you about the crypto crash uh, and what it means. And he basically, basically he's arguing it is time for regulation. Politicians will have to have, to have the guts to do it or else uh, crypto is going to be in trouble for a long long time. Paul Ricard looks at share purchase plans and he explains to you when you should participate. And then Rupert Blunden, who's the investment director at uh, Jemison TTB, talks about uh, what I would call higher risk, higher return investments uh, in the, the space of real estate um, and uh, development. Uh, really worth having a look at, but as I say, this kind of investing um, brings high returns, but along with high returns, as I always say, brings um, high risk. So interesting uh, ex exposure of an area where a lot of people haven't got a real lot of um, knowledge or confidence. Let's go to um, my three favourite stocks. Now, I couldn't help myself. I'll give you my three favourite stocks for 2023. But it meant that I came up with other things as well, other investments that I think are really relevant for 2023. So it ended up being 10 favourite investments for 2023. But let's kick off with the stocks first of all. Megaport is one I really like. Um, analysts really like it. You know, at least two of the seven analysts see uh, Megaport with over 100% gain over the next year. Um, look, it won't happen overnight. It, it will. It'll need uh, the forgiveness of the tech sector and that will come when inflation peaks out in the US and I think it's already happening. When interest rates have peaked as well and still it could take some time. So it might not be to the second half of 2023, the tech um, rebound will happen or it might come earlier. The one thing I will say that every time there's been some better news around interest rates and inflation, some of the big tech companies have rebounded. So MP1 will be regarded as one of the better tech companies in Australia. And I think uh, in 2023, it'll have a nice rebound. CSL is a company that is always worth uh, investing in. The share price is still below what most analysts believe it will be this year. And I think it will be higher than what the analysts, analysts are sort of coming with a number like three, uh, 320. It's about the moment, about 290 something, getting close to 300. CSL, great company, world class, um, has been going sideways for a number of years. It tends to do that and then it takes off again. And then uh, an interesting one, JB Hi-Fi, I like it. It's a good company. Um, these sorts of companies are our favorite at the moment because uh, interest rates are rising. The people who have to make, make their mortgages on higher repayments will have less money to spend. 
uh, in uh, what we call consumer discretionary areas. But JB, JB Hi-Fi uh, pays a really reasonably good dividend and is always a company of the future. So and, and as the old saying goes, uh, when great companies are being built up by the market, it's a good time to buy those sorts of companies. So there's my top three. Other tech companies I like are Xero. Uh, this is another company that will do really well when tech is forgiven in the US. Ordinate is a company that's done well anyway this year, a tech company that's done well this year. And also car sales, that's car is the ticket code. Uh, there, there is some talk that a lot of people have bought cars and they're waiting for it. I still think there's a lot of people out there who would love to buy a new car. Uh, the interest in electric vehicles uh, on the rise. Uh, I think car sales uh, is a company that could do really well over the next year or two. But in 2023, I think you'll see the improvement in its share price. Index plays, I think some of the index plays are really easy. Um, just buying the Australian stock market, um, I reckon the market goes up 10% next year. Uh, add on dividends of 4%, franking 2, there's 15 or 16%. The easy way, I think that's uh, a, a really uh, easy way to play the market. And what happens straight away, but I think over the course of 2023, we'll see a rebound of stocks and therefore IOZ, uh, which gives you the top 200 uh, Aussie uh, stocks, or VAS, which gives you the top 300 pretty sensible way of playing the overall market. If you're going to go playing for the US um, by itself, go worry about the hedging. You've got to worry about the Aus dollar rising. And so I want a hedge play. So if you want to play the US market, IVV is a really cheap way of doing it, but it's not hedge. If you get the hedge version of IVV, giving you the top two, uh, 500 stocks in the US all in one trade, IHVV costs you 10 basis points, pretty cheap cheap way of paying, playing the US market in 2023 and making sure that you don't lose out when the Aus dollar rises, which I expect will happen in 2023. <clears throat> if you want to play the local market in a really risky way, you can go for BetaShares product called Gear, G-E-A-R. That means if the market goes up um, by 10%, you might get 20%, but it's a risky play but some people like playing the risk. Um, and that could be something you could think about for 2023. No recommendations, it's just what some people do to try and get maximum return out of an, a rising stock market. And finally, if you wanna play tech in a, as an ETF, there's one called HNDQ. The H bit means it's hedged. It gives you the top 100 stocks in the NASDAQ. Once again, it's, it's, I'm not saying this is a, a riskless play, but uh, eventually tech will go up and I think the top 100 companies in the NASDAQ will do well. If you have it hedged, it's probably a, a well, I think it's a fairly uh, interesting play. Once again, it's got risk, but it could be very rewarding. Remember, as the, as the rewards go up, so do the risks as well. And that's something that's relevant to the last uh, segment on the show. Let's now kick off with um, my um, uh, look at the challenges for cryptocurrency right now and what is needed and how you should play it if you think you want to play cryptocurrency. Well, it would be an understatement to say that cryptocurrency is in a chaotic situation right now. And to explain what's going on and what the future might be, we have Adrian Przelozny uh, from a company called Independent Reserve, and it's a crypto and Bitcoin exchange company. Thanks for joining us, Adrian. 
It's my pleasure, Peter. Well, troubling times for anyone playing in the cryptocurrency space. Well, to the layman and the laywoman, please explain what's really going on. What's really going on? Um, look, I guess there are a few different things happening all at once, which have resulted in uh, the prices of cryptocurrencies being on a very downward trend this year. I think the the main thing um, over the last year has been the the macroeconomic climate. It's been very bad for risk assets and cryptocurrency has been seen as a risky asset in people's portfolios. So as interest rates went up, the prices of cryptocurrencies went down. And as these prices went down, we found that um, some market participants that were perhaps a little bit over leveraged, they had trouble meeting their margin calls. And that resulted in a few um, cryptocurrency companies becoming um, um, insolvent around the world. Hmm. And this, these insolvencies began to spread and there was a contagion effect. And you know the, the largest one of these was um, a company from the Bahamas called FTX, which went insolvent about two or three weeks ago. Um, and this has resulted in even more contagion in the market. So now we're in a situation where there's a lot of counterparty risk and you know it's it's hard to know who to trust, who in the industry um, is okay and who is not, who has exposure, who does not, um, which is obviously not a very good place to be. And, and I think it's really highlighted the need for more regulation in this space um, because you know, you've got some pretty large privately owned companies holding um, large amounts of assets on behalf of their clients and there's no regulator ensuring that these assets are held in an appropriate way there's no regulator ensuring you know that that these companies are audited and that they behave i guess in the way that consumers would expect them to behave and i think this has really been highlighted in the last two or three months mm. and you know it's really amplified the message that that we've had to the australian government for a long time now that more regulation is required in this space and that if cryptocurrency is ever to become a mainstream asset class, it can only do that with the consumer protections in place that only a regulator can bring. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, I've always thought that, okay, there's a, a group of people who understood what they were investing in. And because the price has risen exponentially over the last four or five years, a lot of retail investors, particularly young retail investors, have piled in. And as a consequence of what's happened this year, I guess a, a large chunk of that momentum from these young retail investors has come out of the market. And I guess they won't return until they really believe there is uh, a security around cryptocurrency. Yeah, look, I'd probably agree with that. So I guess cryptocurrency has been an interesting asset class in that it really began as um, a grassroots retail movement and it kind of bubbled up to more institutional investors hmm. um, after that, which is really the opposite trajectory to most other asset classes, which begin um, as an institutional asset class and then they trickle down to retail investors. So yes, we've absolutely seen a, you know, a lot of interest um, from retail investors in cryptocurrency investment over the last two or three years. 
And yes, now a lot of these people have unfortunately lost a lot of money and, and um, I, I, would, I would expect that they're going to be more careful in the future. But I think it also highlights the need for investor education and for investors to you know, educate themselves about the assets they're um, investing in. Um, and that goes for cryptocurrency and also any other investment. You know, when you invest um, in the shares of a company, you know, you should really educate yourself about what the company does and yeah. its balance sheet and, and all those things. So and, and I Adrian, think ed education is key. Yeah. When you think about it, Adrian, I think a lot of retail investors have a shot at penny dreadful mining companies, biotech companies, and the big institutions don't really get in until the business model has been proven. And, and I guess when it comes to Bitcoin, there was a, f a belief that there was, a, because of its limited supply, they, they believed this was an asset worth uh, in, uh, investing in. Um, and do you see a comeback, particularly for Bitcoin, but maybe other ones like Ethereum? Absolutely. I think that the long-term case for Bitcoin is still very strong. It's as, as strong as it's ever been. I think it's important to remember that that you know the issues that we've seen over the last few months aren't a problem with Bitcoin. The problem with the companies that were holding assets on behalf of their clients, and a problem with a lack of regulation in the space. Um, I think Bitcoin itself, as an asset class, continues to be exactly what it's always been. It's um, a limited um, supply asset that is easy to store, easy to transfer. It's basically a digital gold. Um, nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing in, in this regard has um, altered. Um, apart from the price. See, apart from the price. Apart, apart from the price, it's yeah. it's always been volatile. It will continue to be volatile. No one ever. Hmm. I mean, I don't think anyone's ever expected it not to be uh, very volatile at this point in its life. But I think what we will see in the future is that the industry will be a lot healthier going forward. I think we'll see the bad players in the industry weeded out. They will go insolvent, which is ultimately a good thing for the industry. Hopefully we'll see more regulation around the world to ensure that things like this do not happen again. And I think you will see in the next 12 to 24 months, the industry will come back much, much better than, than what, it, what, what it was in the past. Okay. Let's imagine someone's listening to this conversation and they say, right, he, he, they're probably right, Bitcoin has a future. But they, they still have the nagging doubt, well, where do I bit, buy Bitcoin? Like, what exchange am I going to be able to trust? And this gets back to, and you might be able to name, probably the most potentially secure uh, exchange in the world. But it still is a lot less secure than the Australian Stock Exchange or the New York Stock Exchange. So, um, are you arguing then that the same kind of regulation you see in the ASX and the New York Stock Exchange should come to Bitcoin exchanges as well? Or I wouldn't say that it needs to be. Ex sure, yeah. I wouldn't say that it needs to be exactly the same. Um, it's a different asset class with its own peculiarities. So the, the regulation needs to be uh, created in a way that that acknowledges that cryptocurrencies are a different type of assets to. Um, a share in a company, but there absolutely needs to be a regulation around how a custodian holds assets on behalf of um, its customers. Yeah. And th this is this is the regulation that's lacking right now. So I can tell you that at Independent Reserve, um, we've been operating 
since uh, 2013. So we're one of the oldest cryptocurrency exchanges in the world. Um, we hold assets on behalf of almost 300,000 customers. At points in time, we've had over $1 billion worth of assets that, that we've held. We've, we've never lost any assets. We've never had any issues. We've always operated in a very responsible way. But we've only ever had to, we've, I mean, this is only because we've always wanted to, to do it like that. We've always made a choice to operate in a risk averse way, to be responsible, to have corporate governance, to have auditors, to have penetration tests, to, to make sure we do things the right way. Unfortunately, when you operate in an environment where there's no regulator enforcing these things, you're trusting everyone else to do the same thing, which isn't always the case as we've seen. So we continue to push the Australian government for well-considered regulation in this space that protects consumers. Yeah, so you're arguing that you, you use a voluntary code of self-regulation, but in a perfect world, you'd prefer governments to come through to make sure that the exchanges that have gone broke don't conduct practices that left them vulnerable in the first place. Absolutely, there needs to be consumer protections that are set in law that basically ensure that, that everyone operates in a correct way and that there are independent auditors engaged at all times to check that things are done in a correct way. And I mean, all that, I mean, that, that kind of, it's just, it's just obvious. And it's, it's very, very frustrating that it hasn't happened yet in Australia. We've been trying to lobby the government around this for a long time. And, and, and unfortunately it hasn't been a high priority and, and I hope it becomes one um, very, very soon. Is there a government in the world that really has got, got serious about regulating? I, I think China has, but let's just say, has there been a Western government that re really has got serious about regulating these uh, cryptocurrency exchanges? Yeah, so I think in our region, uh, probably the best example is the MAS over in Singapore. So they announced um, a, um, a set of rules, I think about two years ago, and we actually opened an office over in Singapore and Independent Reserve became the first licensed exchange over there. Uh, so we've been operating in a regulated way for uh, the past 18 months, which which requires us to report to, to um, basically report every three months to the regulator requires us to have mandatory audits. It, we pretty much do things as we would have done them anyway, but yeah. there's a regulator in place to to make sure you know that we basically remain honest, which we would anyway, of course. Yeah. But but I think that what the MAS has done over in Singapore can be used as an example here in Australia for for ASIC and and um, and other regulators who want to become involved. Okay, well, mate, uh, thanks for coming to the program. We'll watch with interest the uh, developments in the industry. But I guess one last question is. How many months or years do you think it will be before um, the investing community has faith in cryptocurrencies again? Look, I think it will definitely take some time. Uh, the cryptocurrency markets tend to operate on a four-year cycle. So the Bitcoin protocol has um, a mechanism built into it to limit the supply of Bitcoin. And every four years, there's a halving of um, the supply of new Bitcoin that get in, um, um, introduced. And this is happening in May, 2024. I would expect around that time that the markets will turn. But I think we're, I think we're probably set for, you know, a pretty turbulent 12 months where there's a lack of trust in the industry and consumers really 
um, you know, have every right to, to ask all the hard questions to exchanges, to have every right to, to ask for a proof of reserves, to have every right to ask for independent audits to, to make sure that they're dealing with a counterparty that they can trust. Yeah. And I, I guess um, the, the starting momentum will be when interest rates start to fall and, and big tech companies start rebounding. Bitcoin will probably get a bit of updraft from that. Yeah, or cryptocurrency. yeah most likely. Yeah. All right, yeah, Matt, thanks for, yeah, thanks for joining us on the program. Much appreciated, mate. Thank you. Okay. That's Adrian Przlozny, which is probably the hardest surname I've ever had to pronounce in my life, and I probably mispronounced it. He comes from a company called Independent Reserve. And today we want to do an education piece on share purchase plans and when you should participate. Paul, why don't you explain to us what a share purchase plan is? Yeah, it's just a capital raising, Peter, but the important thing from a company's perspective is that they don't have to issue a prospectus. Now, issuing a prospectus takes a lot of work. This allows them costs to- Costs a lot of money too. It costs a lot of money. This yeah. allows them to go to retail shareholders without having to issue a prospectus. Mm. Because of that, there are caps, and one of the caps is that ASIC puts on monetary limit and says the maximum can be raised from any investor is $30,000, so yep. no more than $30,000. They're usually at a fix, of a fixed size, fixed amount, and at a maximum price, sometimes that dis, with a discount to the current market price. Uh, often, uh, a share purchase plan comes after a capital raising where the company goes and raises money from institutional investors and then yeah. says, well, hang on, we better do something to our retail shareholders. Yeah, let's be fair. <laughs> let's be fair. Mm. And the, they can be dilutionary. So in, from a retail shareholder's perspective, uh, they're not always as fair as a pro rata rights issue. And some people might not understand by what you mean by dilutionary. So what, what's the, the meaning of that? Yeah, essentially the whole thing about dilutionary, Peter, if you own 10 shares in the company, and if I own 10 shares in the company and you only own one, if we're given a chance in a capital raising, I should get 10 times the, the, chance, the chances that you do. Yeah. Otherwise, my potential investment after the raising will be lower, so mm. I'll be diluted away. Yeah. Uh, but under a share purchase plan, it doesn't really matter how many shares you own, mm. uh, each retail shareholder has the same chance to invest. And if you're a big retail shareholder and you aren't able to participate in the institutional raising, well, the maximum you could buy in the share purchase plan is only $30,000. Yeah. So th in that case, you stand to a big risk of being diluted. So retail shareholders, bigger retail shareholders, don't like share purchase plans typically, whereas they certainly work quite well for very small retail shareholders. Okay, so let's go to the, the next issue. How do these plans actually work? Yeah, well, first of all, the company's got to uh, send out an invitation. Now, this is usually done with an ASX announcement and a follow-up booklet. That's not a prospectus. Mm. That's basically just a booklet telling you how the offer is yeah. actually going to work. Mm. Uh, the booklet will specify things like the amount that they intend to raise, the price, the opening date, how you pay for it, and when it closes. So yep. all the sort of details you'd expect. Uh, most share purchase plans offer a, allow you to participate on a fixed dollar amount basis. Not a number of shares, but they just usually chunk it down to a sort of an amount. So yep. you can invest either $1,000 or $2,000, $1,500 or $5,000, or you can go the whole cog and go $30,000. Yep. So uh, there are sort of you know, fixed amounts you can invest. Um, some share purchase plans are at a fixed price, but more often it's the lesser of two prices. Uh, the first is a fixed price, and then the second is the weighted average ASX trading price uh, in the five days up to and including the closing date 
often lesser discounts. So let's look at how that actually works, yep. Peter, just to sort of put that into English. Uh, let's assume that company ABC uh, plans to have a share purchase plan. Uh, the price is going to be the low or the lesser of $3 or the average ASX trading price over the five days leading up to the close of the offer in three weeks' time. And let's assume that for the sake of this, ABC is currently trading on the ASX at about $3.02. Mm. So in the first scenario, once the share purchase plan is announced, um, ABC shares rise over that period. Mm. And if they go up, um, share purchase plan participants will still only pay $3.00 for, their, for their new ABC yeah. shares. But let's assume that for some reason the market sells off or whatever yeah. actually happens, mm. uh, ABC shares fall over that period. And in the last week, they're trading now at an average of $2.80. Yeah. Well, under the share purchase plan, shareholders would only pay $2.80. Mm. So a big market sell-off could be good, particularly if these companies not going to be affected by the reasons for the sell-off. So. Yeah, and it gives you a bit of confidence where the, those sort of arrangements are in place. Is if, you, if you apply early, you're still mm. protected from the market going down yeah. over that period. So you really don't take any market risk until uh, very close to the actual closing date. Okay. So why don't you tell us how someone actually participates? Yeah, so basically once you've decided you want to be in a share purchase plan, uh, most cases, you don't have to sign a form. All you do is actually pay by BPAY. So mm. you put $5,000, they give you a, uh, a particular BPAY uh, reference number and account and you just transfer $5,000. So really easy to participate. Uh, and then when the closing date comes, the company announces the result. Uh, now, it may have to apply a scale back. It depends how much it wants to raise. So mm. if the share purchase plan is really popular. Yeah, and that <laughs> okay, often happens. And that often happens, uh, particularly where there's a big discount or the market's gone up or whatever's happened to the company, uh, they apply a scale back. Uh, and then, of course, the shares get issued. So really a very straightforward way to, uh, to yeah. add to an investment in a company. So, Paul, let's look at the participation rules and whether someone should really participate. Yeah, and really, the, the golden rule about all these things, Peter, is only participate if you want to put more money into the company, because mm. that is what you're actually doing. So yeah. don't be seduced by the fact that it's sort of a 2 or 3% discount to the market price, mm. or you know, the mar where it's currently trading is a lot higher than the offer. That's, that's something you need to look at, but mm. really, you've got to say, I want to actually invest more money into the company. Yeah. And the other thing to consider is if potentially, if you've got investment dollars lying around, what's the opportunity cost? So is this the best thing to invest in or is there something else that would be a better use of your money? So yeah. think about those two things upfront before you decide to participate. Now, if the uh, share purchase plan price is less than the current market price and you really don't want to add to your holding, an option might be to actually sell your shares or some of your shares on the ASX and then buy them back in the share purchase plan. Mm. Now, there's a bit of market risk about doing that. And mm. of course, you know, there's risk that if the share purchase plan is really popular, you may be heavily scaled back. So mm. you've got to be a bit careful with this. But that's also an option um, that you can have if you're saying, look, I like the company, but I don't really want to add to my holding. It is a, a strategy that is uh, along with a whole lot of risk, isn't it, Paul? But you can actually make it work for you. Man manageable risk, yeah. and uh, you know, and sometimes th th they'll work nicely. So, look, yeah. I always look carefully at SPPs, Peter, but I still come back to the golden rule. You know, it's about saying I want to put more money into the company. That's the most important thing yeah. for you to consider. If the company's got a real of uh, good good potential, then it's usually a, a great opportunity to add you to your holding. <laughs>
Well, we know that the uh, property sector has a few challenges at the moment. And um, I'm now going to be speaking to uh, Rupert Blunden, who's the uh, investment director at Jemison TTB. Thanks for coming to the program, mate. No problem, Peter. So tell us what Jemison TTB actually does. Yeah, perfect. Um, Jemison TTB, it's probably best described as a, a real estate private equity fund um, in in the private market sector. Our main our main focus is really mezzanine debt and preferred equity lending into pretty much all assets um, within the real estate asset class. So, um, and a focus really on assets that are in transition. So a development site through to construction completion or refurbishment of a commercial building. Um, the, we tend to focus um, on a more sort of opportunistic angle on the things that we look at. Um, opportunistic doesn't necessarily mean distress, but there is a little bit of an appetite there um, in that vein. But most of the time, what we try and do to separate ourselves from others in the in the private credit, private investment space is to look where other capital isn't looking. Um, you know, that can be anything to a sector that's not quite as attractive to mainstream private uh, credit. So, you know, things in the social infrastructure, vein, NDIS housing, private medical, bit of aged care, um, take up a fair bit of our, our time. And then, um, in the space in the capital stack that we focus on being mezzanine debt, it's sort of sitting behind the banks and the, the non-banks in that sort of subordinated higher up, higher risk capital position. It's sort of our view of the market that there's plenty of senior debt out there. And we've seen that private credit market explode, but not a lot of pure play mezzanine debt providers. Okay. For people listening, they'll be saying, well, what's the difference between senior debt and mezzanine debt? Sure. Mezzanine debt is basically a layer of capital that sits in between uh, uh, sponsors or let's just say developers' equity and, and then their first mortgage debt. So when they're taking an asset through construction to delivery, they'll typically get, you know, 65% of their, of 60 to 70% of their cost base funded by first mortgage senior debt, no different to a residential mortgage. Yep. Um, they'll tip in their own equity and quite often you'll find there's a gap between where the senior le senior lender is willing to go and yep. you know as far as their equity can take them. We basically fill that gap with a form of structured finance. So mezzanine senior debt is last in and first out. It's the lowest risk, has a first mortgage um, and, and mezzanine debt is second in and second out so until the senior debt's repaid um we don't we don't see a dollar yeah okay so therefore it, it's more risky than lending on the first yep. basis but the returns are higher absolutely so i mean everything we we do is sort of a bespoke boutique manager we look for outside outsized returns relative to the risk so you know, our sort of target gross returns at the fund level sit between 18 and 22%. Um, so, uh, you know, I guess the reward for taking on that extra risk is is a higher return. Um, it's worth noting, though, that in the current, I mean, probably a lot of people have seen this private credit debt market explode um, from about 2017 onwards, and particularly during COVID as well. Um, 
we're seeing a lot of those firms, um, your, your Max Caps, your Qualitases, maybe these are familiar names now, or you know, they're more sort of household names and in investment circles. Their leverage is coming down as well. Um, you know, these firms were all firms like Gamerson previously played in the mezzanine space and moved into senior debt when our big four banks pulled out significantly. Um, so we believe that we're not necessarily going above where these firms used to be higher up the, the capital stack. We're just filling a gap that they're no longer playing in. So in terms of an assets, val assets value, you really, our average sort of loan to value ratio, including the, the senior debt that sits in front of us is probably 75%. Um, so there's a fair bit of uh, equity and profit buffer that sits above us. Yeah, okay. So what you're saying is, okay, it's more risky than first mortgage type debt, yep. uh, but it's manageable. And, and I guess the you, you, you wouldn't leave yourself exposed to just one or two developments. The more developments you have, it spreads around the risk. Well, yeah, that's sort of the, I guess, uh, semi-diversification play. We've got a fund that has a number of investments in it. Therefore, you've, you've got a natural spread of that risk across different assets. I mean, our assets being the investment. But the mezzanine debt, as a provider of that and as a fund who manages that, you have to act like a stock picker, if you like. It's less about doing a high volume of deals at a low margin, but doing you know one or two deals a quarter. Um, or one or two years if the, if, if, if the market is showing some challenges. Sure, in a great year, got capacity to do 10 to 12 deals, but it's really about going in and not looking at it as a, a, through a debt lens, but more looking at it like it through an equity lens. Stock picking, finding the right sponsor, the right project, making sure the risk is mitigated, and of course, then pricing for that risk. So I think risk protection in the mezzanine debt space um, comes from choosing the right asset class to invest in and also um, saying no. So the last 12 months is a great example where we sat on a lot of cash and called capital because it just hasn't worked. It made no sense sitting up the capital stack. Yeah. Okay. So the impact of rising interest rates and inflation clearly has, a spec has affected real estate valuations. So on one hand, um, how serious have the valuations been affected? And secondly, has this created opportunities for you guys? Absolutely, it's created opportunities. I mean, you can't um, understate the impact of rising interest rates, particularly when you're coming off a, of, um, a period of sustained lower interest rates and pretty strong economic growth um, and a buoyant real estate market. I mean, if we, if we take probably maybe the most simple asset class to have a look at being a commercial office and uh, but developing that office our job is not to our job is to look at what the completed value of that office is but from the moment we invest it's just a patch of dirt we are looking at its value you know two three years into the future depending on its size so if you factor in how interest rates play with uh in values of real estate then in the first instance it's obviously um, working off its value of a commercial office, you know, it runs off a yield off the income that it derives. So in during COVID is a good example. So the last couple of years, we, we saw commercial real estate yields in the mid fours. Well, 
you know, cast your mind back three months ago, you saw the 10-year bond rate um, pushing up to the mid-fours. I mean, there's no premium above the risk-free rate for that asset. So naturally, if that spread is to, to widen, then you've got to be thinking, okay, well, the commercial commercial offices more broadly would have to be in the fives, moved 100 basis points. What that translates to is, um, so then you've got valuation pressures bringing the asset down. You've got, therefore, the, the lending, your, your debt raising cap capability coming down as well in terms of leverage if it just sits at an arbitrary 65% of value. The other thing to factor in with rising interest rates is obviously a rising cost to individuals and businesses. So how much are they willing to pay the rent? Because of the rent drives the income, which drives the yield. So it can be quite a snowballing effect. And add, a, add to that again, that the rising cost of construction, which is, you know, it's been in the media a lot in the last 12 months, and it is true, sort of in the vicinity of 30 to 40% increase in cost, you've got a higher cost base and a lower value base as well. So, you know, it, it's, it's not about necessarily knocking um, for the, in the case of, you know, let's say, $150 million commercial office asset, 12 levels, 12,000 square metres of NLA and knocking it a bit off and developers got to chuck in a bit more equity. It's this no longer works at all. So that's the extreme case as an example of how um, inflation and rising interest rates impact assets values. Okay. For us, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I'm going to say, you've also seen a whole lot of construction companies fail as well. So what does it mean for, for private equity and real estate markets that, you know, you operate in? Oh, look, it's, I mean, what we have to do, I mean, it's probably worth saying that big building companies or any, any building company, any prime contractors, these businesses run on incredibly tight margins, no, no matter what the economic environment is. And they enter into a fixed contract. So they fix in their prices for a, you know, a two or three year build job or even a two year build job, but they've got to procure those trades along the way. So they fix in a price, but as they build it, their, their costs are somewhat floating to a degree. Now you hope that most of that is procured, but um, it is, uh, you're talking about low margin businesses enter, entering into a, an environment where their cost base is rising. So naturally there's already pressure on a, on a significantly low margin. And, and, and then if things change, well, it doesn't take, I mean, these are big ticket items, right? Even if it's a $20 million construction job, you know, the builder's not going to be of a huge balance sheet for that job. If it's a, a billion dollar construction job, sure, it goes to a multiplex or something like that, but still the margins remain the same. If you have one or two projects, that's going to put significant pressure on a builder's head company balance sheet. Um, and that is sort of, that is why you, you've seen collapses. I mean, there's ABD here in Melbourne, maybe lesser known, a, a newer group taking on very big jobs and underquoting in yesterday's market in order to win those jobs. So they've already, you know, knocked themselves down 10% to win it and they don't have that 10% to give away. Uh, ProBuild, probably the largest commercial builder to go under. I mean, I, I remember years ago doing analysis when I was, when I was an analyst on ProBuild and seeing sort of a, a one to two percent net profit margin, and this was a time in the market when things were flying along. You know, you've got apartment prices, commercial office prices, 
on the up, building costs are, are known and relatively stable. Factor in, you know, external pressures that are outside of their control, it doesn't take a lot for that margin to be eroded. Okay. So putting it all together then, is this a, a, a much more challenging time for you guys to be in this mezzanine debt space, given the fact that, you know, a builder who may well look like uh, worth lending to three years ago or two years ago now has a, a lot more uh, challenges. So how, how is it affecting uh, your business? It affects our business. I mean, you know, as a fund manager, you, you want to deploy as much capital as you, as you can or as much as you've got. But it's, it's, it's about being able to act with absolute patience. I mean, I would prefer not to put out a dollar for two years and hand it back to investors than to put it into a risky situation. We we up our D, our DD, our due diligence on builders. We get them their financials uh, separately assessed by an external accountant. Um, we've got accountants here who run the numbers and you really, you can't take any added risk on choosing a builder that's not suitable for the job, either in capability or capacity. I mean, you really, as an example, let's say the bigger end of town, you're moving towards a, you know, a builder like Hutchinson. Multi-generational, been through different cycles, have a very strong balance sheet, and, and obviously the, the capability to deliver these projects. As a fund manager, it really, we have the luxury, and, and I think everyone from senior debt up, so be it mezzanine, preferred equity, equity. any time that you're compelled to invest because of capital pressure to deploy that money, you're going to land yourself in trouble. We take a very patient view. We say no a lot more than we say yes, which, which obviously can be somewhat frustrating when the aim, the aim of the game is to put money out. But ultimately, you've got to protect your shareholder and investor, investor's wealth and and grow it so it what you can do um we assess all we you know like all everything in the property market it runs off an external valuation we run our own valuation analysis and sensitivities we bring it back to the underlying land price to make sure that's not overpaid for even if it's transacted the luxury you have is a lender or an investor in in real estate not the owner of the asset is that you effectively get to buy into that asset at the current point in time and look forward so we're able to go and run our own models on you know current revenue assumptions construction costs you know add your 10 percent 15 percent whatever we need in our sensitivity add increased borrowing costs to that and without being too technical, that will work its way down to a land value as we see it. You put that land value next to the price they're asking you to buy into, and if it's significantly lower, then you're not going to proceed. Um, so really, it's a time of e extreme patience, probably like most asset classes, um, and get stuck into the due diligence. Make sure you're making the right decisions unemotionally and just take no risk unnecessary risk at any part of uh, of the mezzanine deal or the opportunity that you're putting together do investors go in project by project all by fund and what kind of returns are they getting now compared say, to so investors can invest with us in two ways one through a pooled mezzanine debt fund so that's got a number of assets uh, mezzanine debt style assets 
in it, uh, spread across Australia's major capital cities. Of course, that fund has parameters. We don't look at hotels. We don't look at land subdivisions. Anything that falls outside of the fund, we raise syndicated investments for. We might have four or five of those on the go at any one time. Um, in terms of returns at the gross level, I think I said before, we, we target 18 to 20% in that range and, and aim to get our investors back above 15%. So it really is 15 to 17, depending on, um, on the risk we're taking in the asset class, of course. Um, mezzanine debt 12 months ago, like, like all debt was much cheaper. Um, we weren't a player in the space then you're probably looking at gross returns of 15, if, if you're lucky, and investor returns of 10. It never made sense to us at that level, even you know, giving sort of some credence to the low interest rate environment. Um, yep. All right, mate. Well, th thanks for joining us. And I think you've um, accurately explained uh, what you guys are up to and why the returns are so high. Thanks very much. An important point. I have to underline that when you get returns of that size, they are risky. You must remember that. And some people will add a little bit of that to their portfolio, but they have to understand it's a speculative investment. Those guys obviously try to make sure it works out for them. But when you're getting those kinds of returns, you always got to remember you are taking a fairly high degree of risk. And that's the show for tonight. Thanks for joining us. I'll see you on Monday. If you want to know more about the story I um, kicked off with, have a look at the Switzer Report, switzerreport.com.au. Once again, thanks for joining us. See you on Monday.